Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. Today's episode is the Law Notes episode, and we have three cases that we're going to talk about, including one that is breaking and big from the Supreme Court involving a license to discriminate, which we thought we were done with after Masterpiece Cake Shop, but is once again rearing its ugly head before the court. The next is a discrimination case that we're going to be talking about under the ACA and access to gender-affirming care. And the final case is a New York-based case uh, involving a teacher and uh, retaliation um, based on perceived sexual orientation. And the final piece that we're going to talk about is our uh, of note, which we always have for you. But this month, even though we weren't able to cover it, typically during these podcasts, we cover what happens during the previous month. So we talk about all goings on during February. But of course, this month, we have a flurry of activity around the Texas governor and attorney general taking action against parents of transgender youth and doctors seeking to affirm the gender identity of youth. And I know folks have been following that case and will want to know uh, what's going on and what better place to hear about it than from Professor Art Leonard's mouth. And that gives me an opportunity to go ahead and introduce our uh, guest today, Professor Art Leonard at New York Law School, chief editor and writer of Legal's LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments here and abroad. Hi, Art. How you doing? Okay. Looks yeah. like spring's coming in a week. Oh, come on. We just got hit with a, what did they call it? A we snow, had snow yesterday. We had snow <laughs> yesterday. Uh, Yesterday was uh, March 13th, and we're recording this on the 14th, and exactly one week from today, March 21st, is spring. Oh, my gosh. We got through winter, almost. We got one more week. Speak for yourself. I've been digging out this whole time. I'm a little bit upstate in Greenwood Lake, and every other day I dig out, and then we get dumped with a new, a whole new um, round of snow. I cannot make it out without slipping. My dog can't go to the bathroom. I am from Florida and not used to this art. <laughs> How long have you been living in New York? It's experiencing New York winters. Since 2001. I don't want to date myself, but I should have. Two decades. <laughs> Has it been that long? My God. Um, well, I look great for, two <laughs> for all that. You do. You still look like a kid. <laughs> Even with my beard that you remarked is looking a little bushy. Yeah, but it's a blonde beard, so it makes you look young. <laughs> I look Nordic this time of year, like a Viking. Um, and you've been seeing concerts right and left. Do you have one that you wanted that, that was particularly good? Well, yesterday I, I went to an extraordinary recital by Mark Padmore, a British tenor, singing song cycles, Beethoven's An die Ferne Geliebt and Schubert's Schwanengesang. And they were both absolutely great with Uchida playing the piano, it was just marvelous. In Zankel Hall, which is the smaller hall in Carnegie Hall, where they have a lot of concerts. The only, only problem there is you can hear the subway at 57th Street. <laughs> so the other side of the wall, because this is a basement theater. Oh, wow. So every now and then you hear the subway rumbling by. Distant sound, but you can yeah. hear. 
It, it adds a special New York vibe. Either that or you're thinking, wow, the percussion is really off right now. Yeah, but you don't have percussion for a leader recital. <laughs> well, then Generally. you're thinking, who let the drummer in? <laughs> Tonight I'm at the big hall for the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Oh, wow. You can even hear a wow. little, little hint at the subway when it goes past. The Boston Symphony Orchestra is in the wrong city. They uh, do a series at Carnegie Hall each year. Oh, that's nice. Who's the conductor these days? Is it still uh, the same old? No, it's, it's the same old as James Levine who passed away. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, well, let, let me know how that is. I hope it's good, but I've been seeing your posting and it looks the like you're having tons conductor of- Conductor is Andres Nelsons, who All I think right. is Latvian, something like that. All right, if you say so. Okay. All right, well, let's get into it because we have a lot to discuss. Um, and I think we're going to kick off uh, our podcast with the latest Supreme Court news, which, of course, there was big news out uh, last month, which is written up in this edition of Legal's LGBT Law Notes. And it's the lead story. And it's that the justices are going to hear an appeal by a Denver-based marketing and design firm that wants to turn away same-sex couples um, many of the issues here that we're going to talk about were present and left unresolved when the court decided Masterpiece Cake Shop back in, I think that was 2018, geez. And um, of course, back then, Justice Anthony Kennedy was still on the court. And today he's been replaced by Kavanaugh and Ginsburg by Coney Barrett, which places basic non-discrimination protect protections at serious risk of new sweeping constitutional carve-outs. And of course, this is the Alliance Defending Freedom, or ADF, uh, representing the uh, marketing and design firm. And they've been uh, designated a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Art, let's talk about this case and the issues, the way it's been framed, and you know the issues, but also what we think is going to happen here. Yeah, this is, this is very interesting. Uh, when wedding service providers have refused to provide services to same-sex couples, uh, there are two different sorts of First Amendment arguments that they tend to make. One is religious freedom. Another is freedom of speech, depending upon the nature of the goods and services they're doing. Is there a speech component? And in Masterpiece Cake Shop, both of them were argued. The baker said that I am a cake artist. And when I do my cake artistry and I design and execute a wedding cake, I'm engaging in expressive conduct, which should be protected under the First Amendment's freedom of speech. And my religious objections to same-sex marriage are the other uh, part of it. It's the free exercise clause, both clauses in the First Amendment. And uh, the Supreme Court never really addressed that on the merits as part of its holding because it decided the case on the basis of some commissioners of the Colorado Human Rights Commission making comments at the hearing on the discrimination claim that were dismissive or derogatory towards the Baker's religion. And the court said that if the decision maker, in this case, the members of the Civil Rights Commission express overt hostility to religion, then the Baker is not getting a religiously neutral forum in which his discrimination uh, charge is being considered. And it's not his charge, it's the charge against him is being considered. And so they overturned the commission's decision on that basis. Uh, and they, but they did in dicta, uh, Justice Kennedy did write, of course, uh, we have rejected the idea under Title VII, for example, 
that someone with religious objections serving people because of their race could claim a religious exemption from complying, uh, not Title VII, with the public accommodations provisions of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And uh, you know, similarly with respect to uh, discrimination uh, based on religious objections to particular people. Uh, and this is an issue that's now being waged in, uh, in one courtroom in particular in the Northern District of Texas, as we've talked about in the past, Judge Reed O'Connor. Uh, but in this case, uh, and, and it sort of it magnifies it to identify the, uh, the uh, plaintiff in this case as a design business. This is Lori Smith. She's an individual, but she's incorporated as a business. She does website design. And she claims that she wanted to expand into doing wedding websites, but she was afraid that she would have to accommodate same-sex couples in violation of her, her religious beliefs. Uh, so uh, she got the Alliance Defending Freedom to file a lawsuit, a declaratory judgment action in the federal district court in Denver for a declaration that any attempt to enforce the public accommodations law of Colorado against her would violate her freedom of speech and her freedom of religion. She claims that she's an artist who designs websites and that's an expressive activity in addition to being a, uh, an actual, actual, actualization of her religious beliefs. She said she wants to expand it to weddings in order to propagate her view that only different sex couples can get married and that same sex marriages are not legitimate, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so she's combining religion and speech here in her case. And uh, they brought a declaratory judgment action. The uh, district court rejected her argument uh, did not throw her out on standing grounds. You would think they could have thrown her out on standing grounds because she's never been approached by a same-sex couple and she's never turned one down. And she didn't even, she wasn't even doing wedding uh, sites. She was saying, I want to expand into that and I'm afraid that my speech is being chilled. My development- she purchased all sorts of people to rush in the court and try right. to get- So I thought it would have been a standing thing, but it wasn't. Instead, uh, the district court uh, just said that she doesn't have any kind of religious freedom right here. And uh, that's the basis on which the district court decided. It went up to the first circuit, uh, the 10th circuit, uh, in, uh, also in Denver. And the panel divided two to one. The majority said, uh, the big question for us is what is the standard of review here? That is, what is the burden on the state in defense to justify uh, uh, the application of a rule that burdens the free speech and religious free exercise rights of this individual? Uh, if we apply Employment Division versus Smith, the 1990 Supreme Court decision that said there is no general religious freedom exemption from complying with neutral laws, state laws of general application, uh, the standard of review would basically be rational basis. Does the state have a rational basis for this? But she's got a free speech thing in there. And the free speech thing relates not only to what she can do in terms of designing her website, there's another provision in the Colorado Civil Rights Law that says it's a violation of the law to publish a policy that you will deny services on a ground prohibited by the law. That is, you can't uh, on your website say, oh, by the way, we don't serve same-sex couples because the statute forbids sexual orientation discrimination. 
uh, and the statute says you can't say in advance, we do not serve same-sex couples unless you have a right not to serve them. Uh, so the court said there's a direct First Amendment burden here. And if there's a direct First Amendment burden, then we use strict scrutiny to evaluate the state's policy. Now, strict scrutiny is usually but not always fatal to the state policy. And in this case, two of the three members of the panel said, we think the state of Colorado has a compelling state interest to prohibit discrimination against same-sex couples in Colorado. Colorado now allows same-sex marriage, which it didn't at the time of Masterpiece Cake Shop. Those men in Masterpiece Cake Shop went out of state to get married and they wanted that wedding cake for a celebration they were going to have when they returned to, to Colorado. Uh, but now Colorado, and it's part of the public policy of Colorado, Colorado allows same-sex marriages. And uh, people who are engaging in same-sex marriages have the same right to access goods and services in connection with their weddings as different sex couples. And uh, the court focused on Lori Smith's claim that she had unique design skills and that, that was part of her claim that she's, uh, she's an artist, actually. She claimed, I'm an artist, I have unique design skills. So the court said, well, if you have unique design skills, that means the same-sex couple can't just go out and get someone else to design the website and get the same benefit of the same unique design skills that you're offering. And therefore, the state has a compelling interest to ban the discrimination. Uh, the dissenting judge, Judge Timkovich, the chief judge, who used to be Attorney General of Colorado, and he, in fact, was in charge of the defense in uh, Romer versus Evans back in 1996, defending Amendment 2, uh, which was the anti-gay amendment to the Colorado Constitution. So now he's on the Court of Appeals. His reward for being an ultra-conservative state attorney general was George Bush appointed him uh, to be a federal appeals judge. So he dissented. He said, this totally misrepresents the Supreme Court's First Amendment case law. So that, of course, gave ADF some hope. Uh, that they might uh, be able to uh, to get the Supreme Court's attention, and they did. Uh, but the funny thing is how the Supreme Court edited the questions presented in the cert petition. In the cert petition, ADF uh, phrased the question in terms of both religious freedom and freedom of speech. Right? But the court edited it to remove the religious freedom part of it. Uh, their first question on the cert petition was whether applying a public accommodation law to compel an artist to speak or stay silent, contrary to the artist's sincerely held religious beliefs, violates the free speech or free exercise clauses of the First Amendment. That was their first question. All right, the court edited it. So now the question that will be reviewed is whether applying a public accommodation law to compel an artist to speak or stay silent violates the free speech clause of the First Amendment. They've totally written the religious issue out of the case, which means that this is not a case where they're gonna take on employment division versus Smith. And we know that at least three and possibly five or even six members of the court would like to overrule employment division versus Smith. Uh, three have specifically uh, in, in concurring opinions in the Fulton case last year, <clears throat> Three members of the court, uh, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, as much as said, the court should have overruled the Plymouth Division versus Smith in this case. But listeners may recall how Chief Justice Roberts came up with an alternative theory of the case 
the Nate Employment Division versus Smith irrelevant uh, because uh, in the contract between Catholic Social Services and the city of Philadelphia in that case, uh, the city had discretion to waive uh, the anti-discrimination provisions. So the court said it wasn't, the contract didn't create a rule of general application. Therefore, Employment Division versus Smith didn't apply. Therefore, strict scrutiny did apply. And the court said Philadelphia did not have a compelling interest to require Catholic social services to certify same-sex couples to be foster parents. That's last year's news. But in this case, uh, ADF, which is eager to get Employment Division versus Smith overruled, had a second question in this petition, which was uh, whether uh, a public accommodation law that authorizes secular but not religious exemptions is generally applicable under Employment Division versus Smith. And if so, whether this court should overrule Smith. The court did not grant cert on the second question. So they're leaving Smith alone in this case. And uh, the interesting thing is you would have expected that concurring in the grant of cert that Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch would have dropped a little comment saying, we also would have granted on the second question, but they didn't, probably because they figured out what Robert's game is here. Chief Justice Roberts would like to rule in favor of uh, Lori Smith in this case, possibly even because of the burden on her religious views, but he's found a way to do it. He can reverse the 10th circuit, based on a view that they misapplied the compelling, the uh, strict scrutiny test in evaluating whether uh, the state of Colorado has a compelling justification for banning Lori Smith from publishing on her website that she won't make uh, websites, she won't design websites for same-sex couples getting married. Uh, and I think that's probably how it's gonna turn out. Not sure, but I think uh, that the Timkovich dissent was pretty vehement and cited a lot of case law and it's possible the court will say that we don't see that the state of Colorado has a compelling state interest. There are tons of website designers out there. Uh, the fact that each one has unique skills is another question. Uh, the question on which cert was granted is at a very abstract level. It, it doesn't ask whether a website designer has a free speech right. It asks whether an artist has a free speech right. And that's accepting the proposition that a website designer should be characterized as an, as an artist for First Amendment purposes. And I expect that to get a lot of attention. In the right. Uh, it seemed like that the Supreme Court, I mean, this was always going to be the really, really tough piece was if they grapple with who is an artist, they have to go down the list and draw some kind of line of, you know, is a cake artist working in frosting an artist? Is a cabinetry maker working in wood an artist? Is a florist designing floral designs an artist? Because that was that's been a claim in the florist cases. Right. right. Cases. Uh, we we do have some case law from Arizona stating that people who design stationery are artists and can refuse to make uh, uh, custom designed invitations for same sex weddings if they want to, in violation of a local ordinance. I think that was in Phoenix. Uh, and that was a decision by the Arizona Court of Appeals that I think was upheld by the Arizona Supreme Court. So, you know, we, we have, as, as Alito predicted in his dissenting opinion in uh, the uh, Bostridge case, uh, uh, Bostock 
Bostock case. I got Bostridge on the mind because I'm reading <laughs> Bostridge's book about Schubert's Winterizing. So I was like, what if something but an excursus here? Somebody putting their head in the sand. <laughs> yeah. But but Bostock, uh, you know, Bostock holding that uh laws banning sex discrimination, ban sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination. And Leto said, wow, are we gonna have religious freedom issues here? Just like in his dissenting in, in Masterpiece uh, Cake Shop, he said, wow, are we gonna have religious discrimination issues here? with same-sex marriage. So uh, yeah, we're gonna have all, all these religious discrimination issues. And here it's, it's sort of masquerading as a free speech issue, but it's really a religious issue because religion is the basis of her objection to providing uh, design services for websites for same-sex weddings. So it all really comes down to that. And when religious freedom is the underlying cause, you know how this Supreme Court majority is gonna rule. They're for religious freedom. Yeah, very rare for them to rule Christian, Christian faith. <laughs> yeah, and once you add Barrett to uh, to the court, you know that's that's really tipping the scales, because that means they don't need Roberts. Right. Uh, they need to get Kavanaugh, and Kavanaugh tends to join with Roberts on some of these crossover decisions where they're with the three Democratic appointees. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Uh, right. It's going to be interesting. It'll be argued next term. Uh, once you get past January, new cert grants uh, tend to go over to the next term. So sometime uh, October, November uh, next year will be argued and decided sometime in the spring, early summer. And of course, we will continue to bring the latest as this case evolves and of course, cover it as it's argued, hopefully with uh, new Justice Katanji Brown Jackson. Uh, and let's go ahead and take a short break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about a transgender employee and access to gender affirming health care. All right, we're back. Uh, we are going to be discussing gender affirming health care and how even when employees have access to care uh, in their insurance plans, they're can be other challenges uh, that they will face uh, that involve barriers to accessing care and uh, discriminatory actions that are taken by insurance companies uh, to prohibit them from seeking the care that they medically need. So Art, let's talk about a case out of a federal court in Kentucky that deals with these issues and an employee at Citibank. Okay, and uh, this is a, a bit complicated because uh, this is ERISA and the Affordable Care Act and their interrelationship and uh, the possible interrelationship of Title VII, although it turns out that wasn't part of this case, but the employee is also suing under Title VII against the employer. But this case, uh, Tiana Polanchik is her name, a Citibank employee uh, who receives her insurance under an employee benefit plan. Uh, the employer bought group health insurance from the Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield. And the Blue Cross Blue Shield policy covers gender transition surgery. But it does not cover, according to the interpretation by the insurance company, which is the administrator of the benefits plan, it does not cover uh, various forms of follow-up procedures in order, in this case, for a female to male transition in order to masculinize the features, especially the facial features of the individual. They said that's cosmetic surgery. And our policy does not cover cosmetic surgery. 
And in fact, the specific procedures and their technical names are given in the opinion, I'm not gonna to try to pronounce them. The, the particular procedures that the doctor listed that they wanted to do are specifically excluded in the pol insurance policy for anybody, not just for transgender people. I mean, the, the whole idea of these uh, group insurance policies is we cover medically necessary care. We don't cover cosmetic care. We don't cover plastic surgery unless it's to correct a medical problem. Uh, and here, you know, maybe there's a psychological issue about whether someone who has transitioned now looks like the gender to which they've transitioned. And uh, genital surgery, obviously, that, that addresses stuff that you don't see when someone is dressed. But when they're out there in the world living in a particular gender, presenting in a particular gender, they want to look as much as possible like that gender and uh, plastic surgery will enhance that. And the insurance company says, yeah, but that's, that isn't medically necessary. That's cosmetic and cosmetic we don't cover. So uh, in this case, the uh, uh, Pelagic and her doctors had agreed on the next steps and they had scheduled the surgeries and then the surgeon put in the application for preclearance from the insurance company that it would be covered. And they assumed it would be because the Citibank Employee Benefits Plan, as embodied in the insurance policy, covers gender transition. And their theory was, this is just another step in the transition. Uh, but the insurance company said no. And the scheduled procedures were canceled because they weren't gonna be covered. And because the employee didn't have the money to pay for them otherwise. Uh, so the, this lawsuit was brought against Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield, uh, which is the lead defendant and the employer Citibank on the grounds that it discriminates uh, based on uh, gender identity against the employee under the Employee Retirement Income Security Act and the Affordable Care Act. Uh, the Employment Retirement in in Income Security Act, which here and after I will only call ERISA because that's what all lawyers call it. Life is too short to keep saying Employee Retirement Income Security Act. So we say ERISA. And then the Affordable Care Act is ACA. I don't think anyone calls it ACA, but, but at any rate, so the theory under ERISA is there's a provision in ERISA that says that you can sue the administrator of your employee benefits plan for denying your benefits. Your claim is that the denial violates the insurance contract and the standard of review is arbitrary and capricious. If the administrator has discretion under the uh, employee benefits plan to interpret and apply the provisions of the insurance policy, which uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield did in this case. And so the question says, uh, Judge David Bunning, who's the US district judge in the Eastern District of Kentucky is deciding this case, was, was it arbitrary and capricious for them to turn down coverage for the uh, follow-up uh, plastic surgery, basically, various kinds of plastic surgery, uh, which were to be done to masculinize Palanchik's features, or no, to feminize, this is a, a female to male, to feminize her features. Uh, and uh, he said, it's not arbitrary and capricious because their job is to interpret and apply the insurance policy and the insurance policy even lists these procedures as excluded. And to the extent that there are some uh, procedures that weren't on that list, since they're for the same purpose, they can be characterized as cosmetic. That's not irrational. 
And to be arbitrary and capricious, it has to be irrational in light of the terms of the policy. And had uh, previously dismissed the suit against the employer under ERISA because uh, you can't sue the employer. You, you, can, you have to sue the employee benefit plan under ERISA. And under the Affordable Care Act, uh, the argument was uh, by the employer, we don't get any federal funding for our employee benefits plan. Therefore, we're not subject to the non-discrimination provision in the Affordable Care Act in terms of our insurance policy. Of course, we can be sued for gender identity discrimination under Title VII because employee benefits are terms and conditions of employment. And so Title VII, which bans discrimination uh, as a result of Bostock on the basis of uh, gender identity, uh, but I don't think that separate lawsuit is going to get that far. Uh, the employer was dismissed from this case. Uh, so the Blue Cross Blue Shield was left as the sole defendant. Uh, but the court said, uh, Judge Bunning said, I don't see gender identity discrimination here in violation of the Affordable Care Act. And the reason for that, he said, is they ban these procedures for everybody, not just transgender people, anybody who wants a procedure that can be characterized as cosmetic is not covered by this plan. She argues it's not cosmetic because it's part of my gender transition. And he says, well, you know, we could have a dispute about that, but uh, I think the uh, interpretation of the plan by the insurance company is rational and uh, therefore under the arbitrary and capricious standard that governs. Uh, so he says, uh, since everybody has prohibited coverage for these procedures, uh, there's no intentional discrimination against uh, transgender people here. Uh, the plaintiff comes back and argues, yes, but it has a discriminatory impact on me. Aha, says the court, that's not intentional discrimination. That's disparate impact. And disparate impact is not covered by Title IX. And Title IX is incorporated in the anti-discrimination provision of the ACA by reference. The ACA doesn't specify the grounds of discrimination. They say it prohibits discrimination, uh, which is outlawed under the following statutes. And it lists Title IX for the purpose of sex discrimination. Title IX is an intentional discrimination statute uh, for sex discrimination and educational programs, not a disparate treatment statute. Title VII is a disparate treatment statute. So once again, you know, your separate Title VII cases where you go for this, this is all incredibly complicated and unnecessarily so. I mean, if Bernie Sanders had his way and we had Medicare for all, we have a system where employers are not buying insurance from insurance companies and insulating themselves from any suit under the employee benefits laws by including, uh, excluding particular procedures from the insurance policies they're buying from the insurance companies. Now for this employee benefits insurance plan to qualify under the ACA, and uh, for the employer to avoid a penalty, the employer has to provide a minimum standard of coverage as outlined in the ACA uh, regulations uh, in their employee benefits plan. But I don't think that necessarily includes the procedures that we're talking about here. I think it, it, it is limited to what they consider medically necessary procedures. And the interpretation of the Obama administration was that includes gender transition surgery, you know, medical treatment, hormone surgery, it doesn't necessarily include the follow-up stuff. And uh, that to someone who is transitioning can be a very serious aspect of it. It can be very hard uh, to do a psychologically satisfactory 
transition that takes care of your gender dysphoria issues without looking like the gender that you are trying to present as after your transition. Uh, and, and so uh, being deprived of this is uh, to, to uh, the people involved and uh, uh, should be of concern to all of us, an important part of their transition. Uh, so this is an unsettled issue. This is just a district court decision. It's possible that she'll appeal. I believe she is represented by counsel. And so it's it's possible that she'll appeal. And uh, we'll see where this one goes. I think that will be to the Sixth Circuit in Kentucky. Yeah, it is. All right, well, we'll continue to track this case and other litigation around this issue and access to care. Uh, Actually, the, the plaintiff is represented by a major law firm. So it may be oh. a Littler Mendelssohn. Oh, Littler. Okay, great. All right. Well, uh, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we uh, are going to cover one final case that's in New York City. All right, we're back. Uh, finally, uh, we have a case of local significance involving a teacher right here in New York who was fired by the New York City Department of Education after an altercation with a fourth grade student who uh, called him gay, taunted him from time to time. The federal court ruling we're going to discuss stems from the teacher's lawsuit under Title VII and the city and state uh, human rights law for discrimination and retaliation due to perceived sexual orientation. Art, tell us about this case. Okay, we don't know the sexual orientation of the teacher. Uh, Tyrell Small, uh, who began working as a New York City elementary school teacher in the fall of 2016, received good ratings for his first three years as a teacher, uh, but ran into problems in the 2019-2020 school year when he voluntarily transferred to PS312 in Queens, where the principal, Valerie Paul, assigned him to teach a fourth grade class. And a student in the class, as you mentioned, called small gay and taunted him uh, on occasion. Uh, and at some point, uh, small obviously lost his temper and was, uh, accused of shoving the student and uh, stating nasty things to the student, you know, being provoked, losing his cool. And uh, he had complained to Paul several times about the student, but Paul took no action. In fact, the first time he complained, uh, Paul said, well, what did you do to him? <laughs> so, uh, and, and uh, he felt that uh, he wasn't adequately supported by his principal. But uh, he was on probation that year. It was his first year at the school. He was probationary. And the student evidently complained about being shoved by the teacher. And so they did an investigation of small. And he was non-renewed at the end of the school. He was dismissed, not, not continued. Uh, and so he sues under Title VII. He claims it's because of perceived sexual orientation. And uh, Judge Gregory Woods of the U.S. District Court, Southern District, says, uh, I don't think this was about his sexual orientation. This was about him shoving a kid <laughs> and you know, losing his cool with a student. That's very unprofessional. Uh, he ended up getting lower ratings from Principal Paul, who you know, the principals in the public schools observe the teachers and they do ratings. He didn't get such good ratings from Paul as he got from his prior principal in the other school. And they decided not to continue it. And uh, Judge Wood says that the principal never mentioned his sexual orientation one way or another. There are no homophobic comments on record or anything like that. It said the only homophobia exhibited is by a fourth grader. And you can't make a hostile environment claim out of a student 
a hostile environment is a situation with coworkers or uh, with uh, supervisors or managers. And uh, I'm not sure that this is totally right because I know there are cases that say a hostile environment can be created by a customer if the employer knows about it and doesn't take steps to protect their employees. But he said, I, the judge would says, I'm unaware of any uh, case law saying that a fourth grade student can create a hostile environment for a teacher. But I think any public teacher will tell you that uh, a particularly obstreperous fourth grader can certainly do that. It'll be quite a distraction in the classroom. My sister but, has a three-year-old and I can, uh, it's, it's, it. <laughs> it's exhausting. So anyway, he struck out on his federal claim. And uh, once the court decides that uh, there's no federal case, then it's a matter of discretion for the court whether to keep the case going under the state and local law. But right. the judge said, no, we, you know, within the Second Circuit, we've been discouraged from holding on to these cases that are purely state and local law. Right. Uh, so, you know, maybe he could go back and, and if he hasn't missed the statute of limitations or something, he could perhaps file in state and local. But uh, the theory of the case is that there's no evidence, no evidence at all that the school was acting because of his sexual orientation. Right. And he also claimed retaliation because he said he filed complaints with the principal. And this is retaliation because he also filed a grievance with his union about the way they were treating him. But uh, the court didn't see that either. Which all goes to show that it really was the hostile environment based on a lack of action from the from the principal, right? Like he's filed multiple, um, you know, please take some action, please help support me, remove this child from my my it's class. Well, and part of the problem on the retaliation claim, the court said under Title Seven, it's uh, retaliation uh, for uh, complaining about a violation of Title Seven. And, you know, it's retaliation for engaging in a protected activity. And the court said, well, when he complained to the principal about the student, he wasn't engaged in uh, protected activity under Title VII because he wasn't complaining about a policy at the school. He was complaining about a student's behavior. And the filing of a grievance, said the court, also isn't protected uh, as... Uh, in this case, uh, because he's complaining about a student. I mean, again, when you when you think about it, and if it was a, a bunch of students making, um, you know, gender based um, or or race based taunts, and the school takes no action, um, you can arguably say that the policy of the of the school wasn't enforced with respect to taking race seriously. And yeah, although he'd have to show that uh, that different kinds of complaints that don't about sexual orientation were dealt with, you know, more expeditiously or more effectively by the school. Also, he's he's pro se, so he doesn't have have legal counsel. And the judge granted him twenty one days from the date of the court's order to replead his dismissed claims. Mm. You know, if he can come up with with the relevant facts, but he's pro se. I mean, and first he'd have to find an attorney. Then the attorney would have to do some investigation, get up to speed, and within 21 days of the date of the opinion, would would have to have a. a Are uh, we still in that window? Should we do a calling all attorneys for this? Well, order? no, because this was uh, <laughs> this this decision was issued on February 7th, so the time has long since expired. Right. Well, there may be some fire. state issues here. Um, so if you're listening and passionate about this, give it a look. I, I will just say, you know, in Googling this case and looking to see if there was anything else written up about it, I couldn't find anything. And it just goes to show how, how great a service Law Notes is 
uh, in covering some of these cases that wouldn't otherwise receive any public attention at all. Yeah, trial opinions, except for a few controversial things, such as what we're going to discuss during our up note segment, trial decisions usually don't get much attention from media. All right. Well, we actually, this is one of those rare times where I know what we're going to talk about in the upnote. It is not a surprise. And we did save a little bit of extra time because it's such an important issue. I know that lawyers and non-lawyers alike are paying attention uh, to this case uh, and it's moving so fast that even if we cover it now and when we cover it at length next time in Law Notes, there'll be more to say about this. So let's give folks just a little bit of, t- of a taste of what is happening in Texas with respect to um, in the transgender discrimination where the state is going to go after parents who are supportive of trans youth as uh, abusive. All right, this is this is sort of a bizarre type thing, but it's uh, there. There are actually proposals in several state le- le- legislative proposals to ban uh, the provision of gender affirmation procedures to transgender youth, uh, basically to say that uh, parents may not provide it, uh, healthcare workers may not provide it, healthcare workers who find out about it have to report it to the state. There could be criminal penalties. Parents could lose custody of their children on theories of child abuse, all this kind of stuff. There was a bill like this in the Texas legislature, but it was voted down. But that didn't phase Ken Paxton and Greg Abbott. Ken Paxton is the attorney general, and he issued a formal opinion stating that performing any kind of gender affirmative treatment on, uh, on minors is child abuse uh, under the child abuse statutes. Uh, and uh, he sent this opinion out uh, actually to a legislator who had been in support of the bill that went down. Uh, so the legislature uh, asked, uh, I don't know whether this was a friendly ask that was solicited by Paxton, but Paxton issues his opinion. And then the governor runs with it and issues a directive to the state's uh, Department of uh, Family and Protective Services and says, I want you to go out there and investigate any parent who you find is providing this treatment for their children and doctors. And, you know, I want you to enforce this. It's child abuse. That's a crime. We should be prosecuting these people. And if they're convicted of child abuse, we should, you know, that may take away the custody over the children. Uh, so they started in as soon as the letter went out. And in fact, an employee of the Department of Family and Protective Services who has a transgender teenage daughter, and they were providing supportive uh, treatment for her and she was suspended from her job. They're being investigated. Uh, and if, if she's prosecuted, she could lose her license. If she's prosecuted for child abuse, she could use the license that's required for her job with the Family and Protective Services Department. And the custody of her child will be in jeopardy. Well, ACLU and Lambda combined on a lawsuit. They ran right into the uh, uh, trial court in, in Austin, Texas, the capital. Uh, to seek injunctive relief. And first they asked for a temporary restraining order, which was issued to them right at the beginning of March, March 2nd. So too late to be covered in the March issue of Law Notes. We only cover February developments in the March issue. But uh, she got a a temporary restraining order, which the state immediately appealed. And a three-judge panel of the uh, Third District Court of Appeals, which... uh, is actually the liberal district because it's Austin. So there are three democratic judges and they're elected in Texas. 
uh, and they turned back the state. They said, this is premature. It's the TRO and the judge had scheduled the hearing to be held on whether to issue an injunction the following week. So what are you doing here? You know, you can wait a week. Uh, and the injunction only applied to enforcement against that family, not to all transgender families and all doctors providing these services in Texas. Uh, so uh, on March 11th, the judge held a hearing and she issued a temporary injunction that went beyond the family. It, it went to all enforcement, but uh, Attorney General Paxton filed appeals on Saturday, the next day. And under Texas law, the appeal stays the temporary injunction. So the temporary injunction is not in effect. And Paxton indicated, and I believe a spokesperson for the department told the press, so we're gonna go back and we're gonna start investigating again. That we were only uh, uh, we were only barred by the court for doing it for a week. And now who knows how long it will take the court of appeals to deal with this appeal of the temporary injunction. Evidently in Texas, they use temporary injunction rather than preliminary injunction to describe what was issued here. The judge has scheduled a, a trial for July 11th on the merits uh, as to whether there would be a permanent injunction. But in the meantime, this appeal is pending. So, you know, anything we say could be outdated by the end of March. Uh, and uh, so uh, we're, we're giving a little more detail than we normally would on an of note segment, but there's a lot of media on this. The New York Times has been following this with uh, major stories. And uh, the Times usually is picked up by other newspapers and sources, you know, the press services and everything. So a lot of attention on this case. And eventually uh, <clears throat> it may get to the Texas Supreme Court. And ultimately, because there are constitutional issues here that were cited by Lambda and ACLU, it could get to the US Supreme Court. It is a well-established due process right of parents uh, to be in charge of decision-making about the, the upbringing of their children, unless the state has a compelling justification for intervening, so. It's truly shocking to me that when there are constitutional issues at stake and you have a t temporary restraining order or temporary injunction in place that even the state would be able to just file an appeal and have that stayed, um, you know, with constitutional rights at stake, it seems so. Crazy. This is under Texas civil procedure. If you were in federal district court, they would have to apply to the court of appeals for a stay and it could be denied. But evidently under the Texas uh, uh, regulations and civil procedure uh, laws, uh, when the state files an appeal for something like this, it's stayed. What a surprise. Um, all right. Well, thank you for keeping us up to date on that fast moving case. And we hope that there's more to bring you that's good, um, positive news. And Art, thank you so much. Let's hope the next time I see you will be spring. We'll have planted our, well, I'll at least have planted my flowers. Do you have a garden? No, I live in a co-op <laughs> on the Upper West Side. I, I, I live on the eighth floor. I don't have a garden. And, <laughs> and, I, and I don't have a terrace where I could have a mini garden. Uh, but, uh, and I don't think plants would thrive in my apartment. But, <laughs> well, but, I didn't say but they it's possible. It's possible when we get to uh, recording the uh, April Law Notes podcast, 
uh-huh. that we could be doing it in my office or in my apartment. Ooh, very nice. Well, an open invitation for you to come to Greenwood Lake and see my plants. Um, I do, I do do my planting then, and then the other thing I have to look forward to is bears in my trash can. <laughs> well, as long as I don't have to trudge through the snow to get to your house. Oh my God, I don't, I don't promise anything. Um, it's been wet and gross. All right, Art. Well, thank you so much. And thank everybody for listening. And we'll be back in April.